everyone, and welcome back to The Last Journey Podcast. Today, I have a really special guest, one of my absolute favorite people in the entire industry. Her name is Rihanna Green, and you may know her as She Trademarks on Instagram. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to get to talk to you today, Rihanna. Um, how are you doing? Hey, Tiffany. I'm doing good. I'm excited to be on the podcast. I'm so excited for all the stuff that you're going to be doing with the podcast and happy to be one of your very first guests. You are literally the first guest. So I couldn't think of anyone else to ask because if you guys don't know or haven't followed Rihanna, like I was immediately drawn to her because something that is really special about her is she is she is like the beauty business lawyer. Like, I just love the fact that she took something like, you know, lawyers can be kind of intimidating. So I think that it's really cool that she took the focus of like being in the beauty industry. She used to be a hairstylist, which is so cool. Um, and then she figured out how to like take her new career and monetize it and figure out how to scale it to like totally different levels. So whenever I am like, drawn to people in the industry, I find that, um, you know, I'm always looking at things on from a business aspect. And I saw this girl and I was like, oh, my God, this is like this is so cool. And then I met her and, um, you know, things just kind of grew from there because she's so intelligent. She's so cool. She's so down to earth. Um, if you've ever had any type of questions, you know, you can you can go to her. She'll direct you to like whatever it is that you need. And she has so many things to offer. So that is why I decided to have her on the show. And um, Rihanna, I I just want to say that, yeah, like kind of what I was just saying there, like immediately the thing that I noticed about you is that you, you've just taken a different route than anybody. You've really paved your own own way. And I've not really seen anybody do this except for maybe some people after um, you, to be honest. But you were the first original person in our industry to kind of take this route. So Tell me a little bit about your background and how you decided that this is what you wanted to do. So it's crazy because I started off in the beauty industry at like 16. I had my nail license first. So I was licensed as a nail tech, but really just to get out of doing pedicures, I hated doing pedicures in beauty school. So I got licensed as a nail tech and then didn't have to do any pedicures anymore. And then shortly after that, at 17, I got licensed as a hairstylist. And I just really worked in the beauty industry the whole time I was going to college and going to law school. And at one point, I even was like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to like go to law school or finish college. I just want to do hair. But I just kind of kept going, taking classes and doing both. And then eventually school was done. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I will like, you know, go forth and use the degrees that I got. But I kind of realized probably I would say about like two years into my first job, which was at a very traditional place. I was a prosecutor. So I was working for the government, trying cases. I've tried all kinds of cases like, you know, petty thefts, DUIs, murders, rapes, like the whole gamut of serious crimes. And I kind of realized like pretty soon that I was like, this is, I enjoy it and it's rewarding, but I just feel that I've been placed into a very serious box. Um, and like you said earlier, attorneys can be kind of intimidating. They are pretty serious people working at the DA's office. It is very conservative. I'm talking like blue suits, black suits, gray suits, pantyhose, like tan shirts, no earrings, 
um, or, you know, studs. Like it just was really very um, more conservative than me being an artist, you know, a previous hairstylist would typically be. And so at some point I decided to make a pivot and I started with uh, insurance defense. And that's really where the idea for this business even came about because it was there that I started getting salon cases. And I just remember thinking like, dang, when I was working in a salon, I would have never thought about these things. And I was one of kind of the majority in our industry that will tell you like, I don't need that. I've never been sued. Or I don't know anyone who's ever been sued or, you know, had a personal injury claim against them or any of those things. And so when I was working there, I was like, man, there really is a lot of things out there that beauty professionals need to be aware of. And I think that I can be the one to deliver it to them in a way that they understand and realize like, oh, dang, I probably do need those things. Yeah, I mean, and that's the that's the coolest thing about you, too, is I feel like you're always just like thinking of not only what's the next step right now, but like what's the next step ahead and like how can you do something to set yourself apart? So like tell me about the very first steps on your journey. Like how did you actually kind of like break away from that traditional role? Like that moment when you were like, okay, I know I have a good idea. How am I going to act on it? So when I first started thinking, I am going to break away from traditional nine to five law and I want to build a virtual law firm. This was pre-COVID, right? So now post-COVID, there are more virtual law firms, but pre-COVID, it was not a thing. And I remember telling some of my lawyer friends like what I wanted to do. I was like, I want a virtual law firm. I want to be able to work wherever my laptop is, travel, all of that. And I don't want to be like bound to a court schedule. And I don't want to be nine to five in it. I want to work like odd hours. I'm a night owl. So I want to work, you know, like different hours. And I remember my friend saying like, that's never going to work. And then when I niched down and I was like, at first it was just going to kind of be a law firm for female entrepreneurs. And then when I niched down even more and was like, no, I want it to be specifically for beauty professionals. So many people were like, that is never going to work. Beauty professionals don't care. Like you are, it's a lost cause, you know? Um, and I remember thinking like, okay, well, we'll see. Like, I am really one of those people that believes like you should try whatever it is that you want to try. And if it doesn't work out, you can always pivot. So I started with the contract shop. That was the first thing I started with. I started with forms that beauty professionals need that aren't really easily available online. So, you know, there you've got your rocket lawyers, you've got like your different things. You might be able to find like, um, a particular independent contractor agreement, but the forms very specific to our industry that are lawyer approved, lawyer drafted, lawyer reviewed just did not exist. So that's where I started. I started with like, okay, what does every beauty professional need as like a starting beauty professional? Okay, they need an intake form. They need a consent form. They need to be able to legally enforce their policies. They need to have consent to use before and after pictures and testimonials. And then COVID was big. So I was like, they also need a COVID release waiver. And that was really basically the starting fives. And then the shop has just grown from there. Yeah. And I think it's so cool. That's the first product I ever bought from you. And um, I think it's such a huge win-win for people who are trying to do things the right way, because it's a great way to get actual lawyer-reviewed, lawyer-drafted contracts without paying, you know, $600 per contract. Like, I feel... Like, you know, you you pay what you get for it for sure. But it's like you have these great bundles where you're putting the different contracts that like, you know, every lash artist needs, every hair salon needs. Like you have them right in the perfect package. And I think it's I think it's a really fair price. And um, 
I know like for me, that's like I, I'm constantly referring all of my clients out to to go to you for those bundles because it's like such a steal in my opinion. And like you cannot put a price on protecting your business. And um, but on the flip side of that, I think it's really cool for you as an entrepreneur to be thinking about like, what can you do? Like you mentioned that, you know, you love to travel and you love you want to be able to work from your laptop. I see that. Um, and, and we'll get into it in a little bit because you're obviously really big into trademarking, which is a huge part of your business. But what the contracts allow for you to do is just to have that like repeat passive income. You know, as a business owner, I, I always like to preach and I do this for myself where it's like, I want to figure out what can I do now? And like, I'll work my ass off to get that done. But like, what can I do now to set me up for success and freedom in the future? And um, I, I just think it's amazing what you've done what um what would you say like what is the next step so so tell me a little bit about um what you specialize in when it comes to trademarking like I know that whenever I see you speak at the industry events um and if you haven't heard Rihanna speak like she is like she she's just like the one that keeps you laughing the whole time I love how um just like she gets the crowd involved and everything. It's never a dull moment. And I, I feel like I always learn something every single time that I'm talking to her. So um, tell me if somebody was listening now and they were wanting to maybe figure out like they have, um, I have a, I have a client right now who is like, you know, I, I really need to think about trademarking my name because somebody contacted me recently and they said, um, you know, Hey, I, I need to cancel my appointment with you. And she's like, I don't, I don't know who you are. Like, I don't have you on my book. And she's like, Oh, aren't you, you know, screenshot and aren't you this person? And she was like, no, but Oh my gosh, that person is like right near me. And like, this has been her business name forever. Like literally the same exact business name. So, you know, of course I plugged you, but, um, tell me like anybody who's listening right now, like what are they putting at risk by not taking those steps to protect their business? Really, you're putting at risk your whole brand, like your whole business for the most part, because if you are not protecting your business name, right, if you don't own your business name, then there's nothing preventing someone else, like you just said, from coming along and starting a business that is almost the exact same name or the exact same name. Uh, There's nothing preventing someone from going to that, you know, copycat salon and having a bad experience and then accidentally writing that horrible one-star review on your Google or your Yelp page, right? So it can create brand confusion. But what I like to do is kind of get down to the numbers with people because then that's kind of really when it hits home. So I would say like on average, a person that's looking at a trademark, one business name um, in several different categories, because for trademarks, you have to protect yourself in each category that you want to be in. So let's just say to keep it simple, you are a salon, you don't do anything else but salon services, and you have a business name. Well, you're probably looking at 2850 to trademark your name and to pay for that class and do the filing fees and all of that stuff with an attorney to make sure that it's done correctly. Okay, so 2850, and I know that's an investment, and people are like, well, that's a lot of money. I don't have 2850 to give you right now. Um, or like, I'm gonna put it on the back burner because I would rather put. 2800 into my website or, you know, like whatever it is. Um, lots of times legal gets put on the back burner, but the problem is, okay, so you paid the money for the website. You paid three grand on a branding shoot. You have paid money to a logo designer. And then you've also paid money to get that nice name that you created in a nice, shiny, um, 
sign to go in front of your door or in front of your suite, right? And you put off the legal. And then six months down the road or a year down the road, you get a letter from someone who says like, hey, by the way, uh, you can't use that name because I own that name. And so you are going to have to stop using that name within 90 days or else I'm going to take legal action. So now you have essentially 90 days to come up with a new brand, a new logo, take that sign down and put up a new sign. Now, I don't own a salon, but I have had some salon owners tell me that those signs outside the door are really expensive. So expensive. Like they can be, you know, upwards of like five grand, somewhere around there. So your sign itself is five grand. You paid five grand for a sign that now you can't even use. And then when you do decide to rebrand, guess what? You need a new name and a new sign. So now you put 10 grand into just a sign when you could have put 2850, let's say, into figuring out if you can even own that name. And then that way, when you do buy that sign, you do do all the branding, you know, no one's going to come knocking on your door saying like, hey, you actually don't own this. You can't use it. Yeah. Um, speaking of that, that just reminded me of another story with one of my clients who literally just went through this within the past year. And she told me she spent um, over $20,000 to have to rebrand her name. And she has like very successful salons. So, you know, of course, somebody's going to come after her. But you never know who owns that trademark who's going to come after you. Like you could you could think that oh, I'm a nobody. Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to come after me. But think about it. If you paid, if you invested, you know, $28.50 into a trademark, like you best believe you're probably going to enforce it because you care, you know? So you have to expect that if you don't truly own that name, if you're not able to, that somebody can come for you. Or, you know, if they do come for you and maybe you do have like a, a fighting chance, maybe you had the name first and then they trademarked it after, but like you would have to spend tens of thousands of dollars just to go to court to like even hash that out, right? Right, yeah. You would have to spend money to hash out even if you're like, I was using it first, um, they came after me. Okay, that's cool. You could probably potentially get the rights back to your trademark even if they filed after you. But the thing is, it's gonna cost you. So they are going to be like the first to file, let's say. You were using it longer, but they are more business savvy. They decided to file for the trademark. And now you realize that they have a trademark application in or registered before you. Well, now it's going to cost you even more because now you have to either try to cancel their trademark because you are the priority user, meaning you were using it first. And if you're going to do a cancellation proceeding, you are going to be in trademark litigation, which is going to cost you, I mean, I don't think anyone is going to sign on to a trademark litigation matter, any attorney, without at least like a $20,000 retainer, right? So it's like a full-on trademark matter. Um, and those things can really go up to like $95,000 on average for full trademark litigation. So it's like, I get that it's an investment, but it is so much better to be proactive than reactive. So like if you just do what you're supposed to do in the beginning, you pay a lot less. If you have to rebrand, you learn that you have to rebrand before you put all this money into this brand. Uh, and then you don't have to worry about someone knocking on your door saying you can't use it. And you don't have to worry about waiting too long and then finding out that now, even though you were using it first, it was your idea. Now you have to put all this money into it just to get the rights to your name that you were using first. Yeah. And you know, I've told you about this story a million times, but for the listeners who don't know or haven't heard this story. So, um, I was 26 when I started my business and I like I didn't really know anything about trademarks. You know, I was just kind of like Googling. I knew I did like my state search. I knew that LaBelle was 
was not taken and I was able to take that in in the state. But I didn't really ever know about the importance of looking into a trademark search before even creating your name. And at the time when I was 26, like, again, I just I was doing lashes out of my house. Like I had no idea what was going to happen from it. I had no idea I was going to have this like super, super successful company. So now I'm sitting here like I have the name LaBelle, which isn't even technically like trademarkable on its own because, guys, it just means beautiful in French. So, you know, I didn't come up with a unique name back then, but now I've built this whole entire brand on top of it. And like Rihanna said, like I would have to get, you know, my if I were to change my name just to have a trademark, like I would have to put a lot of money into that. Whereas if I knew about this from the beginning, like I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in now. And funny story, but about a year ago, I realized that there was actually a, a girl who was who uses the name LaBelle, like 40 minutes away from me, right over the state line in Pennsylvania. Like that person is so close to me that it could easily get confused, but because it's in a different state, like there's literally nothing I can really do about that, you know? So I've even been in the, in the process over the year, like, what do I do? Like, you know, do I, do I change my name? And, and if I do, you know, what, what effect is that going to have on all of the organic SEO I've created? Like all of these things that you don't think about when you first start a business. And I think that the the business owners these days are a lot luckier because of people like you actually, you know, being able to get your information out on Instagram. Like when I started, I mean, Instagram was like, okay, but we didn't market on Instagram like we do now. We didn't have TikTok where, you know, people are just like handing out business advice or advice on how to run your business. And, um, you know, I think that, you should all take this as a sign to like put the things in place now. If, you, if you're serious about your business and you intend to grow it, the, uh, the amount that you're going to invest now is like nothing compared to what you would have to invest later to change it should things go wrong. Right. And then it's like, okay, so for example, you have two studios right now, right? And you were saying this other girl's like 45 minutes away. So if you have like a third studio that like, pushes closer towards her border, right? And then maybe let's say you're within 15 minutes. A likely person who's in Delaware that like happens to maybe go to Pennsylvania, they might think that that studio in Pennsylvania is a fourth LaBelle studio from you, like your company. And so that's really where like brand confusion comes into play. Because now let's say like that person goes to the Pennsylvania location, has a horrible experience, they get clusters instead of individual eyelash extensions, like whatever the case is, right? And then they are trashing you on social media and you're like, wait a minute, that's not even my salon. Uh, and you know, you're like, it's 45 minutes away. So like, that's kind of like the real importance of being able to trademark your brand. That way, if like roles were reversed and you did have a trademark for it, you could shut her down. Even though she's 45 minutes away in Pennsylvania, you could send her a cease and desist and be like, hey, you can't use this name because I own the trademark rights to it in all 50 states. And that is like really the beauty of trademarks. I had a client um, one time who got a cease and desist from a New York-based company and she was all the way on the West Coast. And she's like, I don't understand why they care about me. I'm like a small mom and pop. And I'm like, well, the reason that they care about you, you is because they are have a brand and a brand reputation that they have to uphold right? So they don't want people to get confused or have a bad experience at your salon and then attribute it to their salon, their brand reputation that they've worked hard to build. So I I mean, I really can't say enough about trademarks. It is one of the only ways that you can own your business, enforce other people from copying you. 
And really it adds value to your business. If you ever want to sell the business, you now have a piece of intellectual property. You now can say like, hey, I can franchise this to people in other states and states that I don't plan to be in. I can sell the whole company and make money off of it because they know that I own the intellectual property rights that they can enforce that against other people. It really just is a a smooth, savvy business owner decision to trademark your business. Yeah. And it's actually funny you mentioned that about going into different states, because technically, if I were to go over the line and I live literally 20 minutes over the like below the line in PA, uh, below the line of PA. So if I wanted to say, like, make a new studio right over that line and ne- next thing you know, you have LaBelle Studio PA, which is like what the website is, right? LaBelle Studio PA. And then I'm just LaBelle Studio. Well, now what if I go into PA? Like she could technically she could technically send me a cease and desist, right? Because like I'm now kind of more close in her territory, in her state. And she could say like, hey, I was here first and you're using my name. Isn't there something like a common... Um, I forget where it's like not technical, but like if I were to open up that studio, like it basically the way I kind of viewed it was like, I'm now limited to where if I wanted to expand, you know, 30 minutes over the line, it might cause me issues. Now, I don't think with this specific person it would, but then you get more into that confusion like you're talking about with, yeah, like now I'm, I do have a LaBelle Studio PA. So somebody could technically Google that and go to the wrong studio. So... There's a thing called common law trademarks, right? And common law trademarks, I mean, I don't want to say there's a thing. They do exist, but they don't give you as broad protection as federal trademarks. So common law trademark rights are basically like, I've been using this name in Pennsylvania. Let's give the Pennsylvania example. And um, I've been servicing clients in Pennsylvania and I don't have a federal trademark, but I've been using it. People associate it with my brand. She has common law trademark rights. If she was also now using it in like some other East Coast areas, maybe not necessarily Delaware, but other East Coast areas, she would have common law trademark rights in those areas as well. But in addition to common law, you know, federal trademark rights, you also have state trademarks. So she could very well have like a state trademark for Pennsylvania. And then yes, that would definitely prevent you from going into Pennsylvania using that name because she owns the name in the state of Pennsylvania. But that's kind of like where the difference is for state trademarks versus federal trademarks. If you are going to expand, if you have clients that come in from different states to see you, if you are like a border state or, you know, where you are like East Coast, all those states are really small. And I know that sounds very Californian of me, but like you could be in a couple different states, like, you know, and in not that long on either side. So if you're in like one of those areas, um, the DMV area, right? Like you're kind of surrounded by quite a few states. Well, you're going to want then a federal trademark because a state trademark doesn't really necessarily make sense because then you're going to have to individually file in all three states that you want. And also then you only have those three states versus like getting a federal trademark where you are going across, you know, the whole nation. Yeah. And and in my opinion, like, why would you even want to, why would you even want to have to deal with all that? Like, if you just do things the right way from, from the beginning, like get your name protected, like make sure that your name is trademarkable. If not, if you're in the beginning of your journey, like make sure that you, um, you think about it now, instead of getting like nine years in, like me, who's like sitting here, like what, you know, what do I do? Right. Um, but I, you know, someone like me, like, I don't like to be told like that I'm limited in anything that I want to do. So, you know, maybe for me doing like going that route 
Like to me, that trademark to me is that shiny object. It's like, I, I want to be able to get that. How am I going to get there? Um, and I do, I, you guys, I do just wish I, um, I do wish I got a trademark from the beginning. So if you um, are thinking about it, don't think about it, just do it. So um, let's, uh, I, I kind of want to like shift here because there's something else that really bothers me in the industry. It's like my, my big ick when it comes to um, Facebook groups and how much bad information there is out there about 1099 versus commission-based employees. I know I like go off on this all the time, but like there is just so much misinformation out there. And um, I think that the biggest things that I hear, so let, let's think about the things. So um, one of the biggest things I hear is that like you can totally do it as long as your lawyer writes the contract like as long as they include like specific language in the contracts. I think one, one thing I saw on a Facebook board was that um, the, the person, basically they, they hire the people. They even have in their contracts written that they're allowed to call the person an employee because they say, you know, that, that calling them a subcontractor just doesn't feel right. They pay for supplies. They do all of these things. And because their lawyer and accountant has approved the, the contracts that they're allowed to just do um, give them a 1099 at the end of the year. And um, my, my little business heart screams, but I want to hear from you, like set the record straight. So, okay. 1099s at employees. It's really hard in a lot of states now to really have beauty professionals be true. Um, and I, I will, first of all, let's just back up for a second. 1099 employees is like a, a term that I hear all the time. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, they're a 1099 employee. And I'm like, quit saying that. Please quit saying that. Thank because you. 1099s are independent contractors and employees are employees, right? So 1099s, independent contractors, in order for them to be an independent contractor, a true independent contractor, there are multiple tests in multiple states, but they basically all kind of come down to the same things, which is Independent contractors are responsible for basically the manner in which the results are achieved, the work that they do, how they're going to do it. You don't dictate how they do it. So I'll give you an example of this. You run a salon. You're like, this is my independent contractor, but we only do this balayage method. We only use this product type and I pay for the product that we use. Maybe it's Wella, maybe it's Paul Mitchell, maybe it's whatever. Well, now you are actually controlling the manner and technique that they're using to achieve their end result or to, you know, perform that service. So you're taking away one of the checks for what needs to be checked off to make them an independent contractor. So another reason that um, or another thing that has to be checked off for them to be an independent contractor is they set their own hours, they set their own rates, right? So they handle their own schedule. You don't tell them when to come in, what days they work, what hours they work. They handle all that. You don't tell them what the salon price is for a full set of lashes or what a volume fill price is. They handle their own pricing, right? Um, in some other states, and like California is pretty strict, they're also going to make sure that they are taking their own payments. So you don't handle any of the payments for them. So they are handling all their booking all their payment processing, all of their supplies, all of their scheduling and um, the manner in which they're doing it, whatever products they're using, all of that. That is a true independent contractor, okay? That is really like 
in this day and age, a booth runner. Okay, like a booth runner, it is equivalent to an independent contractor. Um, really kind of gone are the days where people are independent contractors, but they are on a commission, like a straight commission split where it's like, well, they're getting paid 50 or 60% of the overall, you know, sell of a service or whatever. And then I'm keeping 40 because it's my salon. Like that doesn't really exist anymore. So then let's move over to employees. So employees are exactly what you think of. Like if you think of like working at a Supercuts or working at um, an Amazing Lash or working at like a European Wax Center, they give you your schedule. They tell you what time to come in. They tell you what time to leave. They tell you what time to take your break. You're using their products. You're not paying out of pocket for any of your products. You are getting paid every two weeks, either hourly, you know, mostly like hourly. There may be some type of bonus structure on top of that, but they're handling all the payments and they are paying you um, an hourly wage and you're not really responsible for anything, but coming in, clocking in, clocking out and doing your service, right? So that is a true independent contractor and that is a true employee. What people are doing is doing this quasi 1099 employee that you're talking about, which is like they are coming in, they're making some type of commission split, like 60 40. They're not paying for their products and they are doing the set rates of the salon. So the salon rates are set, the products are set, and their schedule is set. But, you know, if it gets slow, they can go home and they're calling that like an independent contractor at the end of the year. And those just do not line up with the qualifications for a 1099 contractor. Yeah. And honestly, like what that is, like point blank, this is the salon owner trying to save on taxes. So the employee is still like, sorry, the, I'm sorry, the employee, the not actual employee, this person who is getting a 1099 at the end of the year, um, a, they're required to, um, make sure that they're saving out and paying their own taxes. They have to have their own business license. And, and then the salon owner is basically paying them to, point blank, like evade taxes. You don't have to pay that employee tax on them if you call them a subcontractor. But the issue is there is like that with the subcontract or independent contractors, like you were saying, like those people, you're just, you should be acting just as their landlord. Like if I had like a salon suite type situation and I had rooms for rent, like your everything you said, like they would be coming in, they would be running their own business out of that room, taking their own payments. That's what I did when I first started. I, I rented out of a hair salon and I literally ran LaBelle out of a small room in a hair salon that was called Studio Michelle. And we had nothing to do with each other except for the fact that I, I paid her rent. And um, but yeah, it's getting so misconstrued these days where like I, I've had people, um, you know, tell me they're like, oh, well, you know, this is depending on like the different areas of the industry too. Well, like all tattoo artists do this. So, you know, and, and this lawyer said this and this accountant said this and and it's okay because this is normal in the industry. Well, it's not supposed to be. And um, I think that at the end of the day, we're kind of like putting our employees or the people that we're hiring, we're, we're putting them at a disservice and we're all automatically telling them too, like, hey, I care about myself more than you because I don't want to have to pay taxes on you. And like, you can go and do your own thing. I don't care if you pay taxes on your own stuff. That's you, you know, but I'm making out at the end of the day because my, my, I'm more profitable. My bottom line looks great, but like, what is that actually speaking to the professionalism of your business? And if you want to do things the right way, 
you know, you don't know how big you're going to grow. I think that's one thing I'm really, really like proud of with myself is when I first brought on employees, I knew that about, you know, the difference between an employee and a, and an independent contractor. And I knew how big I wanted to grow one day. I knew that if I had, you know, a desk employee, and I knew that if I had people under me, I knew that they weren't also going to pay their own taxes. They weren't going to know how to be business owners. People don't come to your business wanting to be employees and have to do all of the things that that independent business owners do anyway. Why wouldn't they just go work somewhere else? So I feel like you're kind of you're, I feel like you're kind of setting your business up for disaster in the end and maybe this is why a lot of salon owners have issues, you know, keeping employees because I think employees are a lot smarter. There's so much business information out there now like they're gonna say like why am I doing all the work and and I'm responsible for all the taxes yet like this person is still collecting from me you know I can that's you know the other thing is is like okay so you're saving a little bit on taxes and this like is gonna go back to proactive rather than reactive right so you're saving a little bit on taxes by having them 1099 employees, right? Which, you know, we, that's not a real phrase, but let's just, let's just keep going with it because that is what people are referring to it as. Um, but the real issue is you are also setting yourself up for huge liability as a salon owner because they really, and by they, I mean like labor and commission boards, state, federal, really get to dishing out some pretty hefty fines when you are violating labor and employment rules. And so for example, if you are running your business and they are 1099 employees and you are on a true commission split, well, like I already said, if if you're doing everything like their employees and they're on a commission split, they are you're setting their hours, you're telling them when to come in, when to leave, and you're providing their products, right? They really are an employee. And employees have to get paid at least minimum wage, you know, according to labor laws, if they don't make minimum wage for the hours that they work. And so now you have a situation where like, okay, they were on commission, they were working, they didn't have a client that hour or those two hours, they didn't make any money. And then at the balance of it, at the end of their two week period, they weren't even making minimum wage. Well, if the labor board finds out about it, they are going to come back and cite you. And so I want to give an example because there is a case that wasn't really that long ago. It was like 2018. It was out of California. It was a Temecula um, nail salon. And I think they had around 36 employees that they were classifying as independent contractors. So it's important, like the classification here. They had what was considered 36 employees that they were classifying as independent contractors. Okay. And they ended up with citations in the amount of $1.2 million. And that was only covering a 40 month period of, you know, violations. So basically, the way like it ended up shaking out was when they went back and found out about it and they did the investigation by they, I mean, the, you know, the labor board, they realized that these employees were working like nine to 10 hours a day sometimes that um, they weren't getting their proper lunch breaks as employees. Uh, they were getting, they weren't getting their proper overtime as employees. They weren't getting proper rest periods. They weren't getting like their meal periods. And so what ended up happening is that salon got cited for all of these violations. So they got cited for one, misclassifying them as independent contractors. So that's a fine in itself. Then they got 
um, fine for failure to pay minimum wage, failure to do proper rest breaks, failure to provide final paychecks, um, improper, improperly paid rest periods, not providing meal periods, um, and then failure to carry valid workers' comp insurance because these people were employees, so they had to pay workers' comp insurance. So like when it ended up all shaking out, it was a total of $1.2 million in fines. And some states, if you are willfully improperly classifying them, you can be fined up to $25,000 per improperly classified employee. So how many people do you have in LaBelle? Uh, 19. So 19. So let's just like do the quick math on that. If you've got 25,000 times, let's say you have all of those 19 people incorrectly classified, you're looking at a $475,000 citation bill just because you've improperly, you know, classified them. So I just don't see why it's worth it. Like just as employees, they're employees and just move on about your day. I don't know why this continues to be like an ongoing conversation, independent contractor versus employee, my 1099 employee. No, no. Yeah. And I'm, I'll be the first one to tell you, it doesn't matter how good of a boss you are. Like when people leave, especially if it's like you having to let them go or something just like happens and maybe the split didn't turn out the way that you wanted it to. Like, I, I know myself, like I know I'm a good leader, but I know that I've had people leave and I've heard things, you know, I, I've heard things just like said, because sometimes people do that to the, you know, they just do that because they're not happy that things left on the terms that they did. But God forbid if I was doing something like that and somebody decided like, you know what, screw her and I'm going to go report her, you know, like and I'm going to report her because we're not supposed to be 1099 employees. And like usually the the leaders that are doing this are not really like leaders to begin with. So like all you have to do is get one disgruntled employee to report you and boom, they're looking into everything, not only like this year, but like you said, like three years back. You said 40 months, right? Yeah, three over over three years back. Like, is it worth it? Like, no. And and this day and age, like, again, people are smart. Like, you can't you can't pull that anymore. You can't. And it's just, you know, like, there's a lot. I, I don't I still I don't understand why there's so much confusion, because it is pretty clear if you pull up like any yeah. any type of independent contractor test to like see like, hey, I want to kind of do this. Is this like legal? Is this, you know, they're going to really list out the qualifications for making someone an independent contractor. And it's the, it's the ones we've already talked about, but it's pretty simple. If you are doing more of the things than not, you know, for the most part, then they're not independent contractors. If you're providing all those things, they're employees. If you're having all these rules that they have to follow, they're employees. If they just come in, unlock their door, do their work and go home, and that is the extent of it, and they pay you a monthly fee or a weekly fee, then yes, they're an independent contractor. They're a booth renter, a suite owner, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think this was like such a great way to explain everything. So thank you. Um, and what I the last thing I wanted to ask you is like, what are you working on now? So like, what is it that like taking everything that you've built now, like what where have your thoughts been for scaling it past this point? What's your next move? I've got a couple things up my sleeve. Um, I want to get into education a little bit more. So my goal really is to kind of bridge the gap between legal services and the beauty industry at an affordable price. So I think a lot of the barrier for beauty professionals to get everything legally legit is number one, they don't know. So they are lacking just kind of the basic knowledge of 
the things that they need for their business. So that's like an education component. component. And then the second thing is that once they do know, so we've gotten over the educational hurdle. They're like, okay, yeah, I know that I need to, I need to get these contracts. I know that I need to get my LLC. I know that I need trademarks. But then they're like, but dang, I just don't have the funds to set aside five grand or you know whatever it is to kind of get these things in order. So I'm trying to find creative ways to build the necessary resources to bridge that gap. So to make it to where it's like, okay, I know what I need and I know that I want it and now I can afford it. So that's kind of how the contract shop came to be. But I really want to expand on that more to where like, you know, if you need an LLC, you can do it online. But some people are afraid to do it online. So they're like, I feel like I really need an attorney. So why not create some type of program where I can kind of walk them through how to do it online and kind of like give them pointers and then they can go do the LLC online by themselves. So I've got some programs in the works for things like that. And then as I see like new things going on in the industry or just kind of areas in the industry that I think we need help with, I try to structure programs, classes, contracts around things like that. So one of the really big things on my goal list, probably like in the next couple of months is going to be brand ambassadorships. Like one, I am working on my own brand ambassador program for my business. Um, I know that lots of people use my contracts and then they coach and then they tell their mentees or their coaching students to also use my contracts. And so I want to have a way to kind of give thanks for all those referrals that are coming in. Um, and then also allow those people that are promoting my brand to have special perks, like the ability to get access to new contracts early or at discounted prices or, you know, things like that. Ability to like kind of influence what contracts come next, like things along those lines. So I'm working on my own brand ambassador program. But then in doing that, I've also seen so many problems with brand ambassador programs that are out there. So I also want to teach a course on kind of like how to set up a legal Mm. brand ambassador program with like the proper contracts and what your brand ambassadors can and can't do on your behalf and, you know, how to properly classify them as ads when they're doing ads or affiliates, like kind of all that stuff. So really, it's just, it's ever changing, but I always see new stuff and I'm like, ooh, I want to do that or ooh, that would be a great course. And so that really is the goal, education focused and making it accessible. Yeah, I love that. And like, honestly, um, like for me, I can't wait to sign up for the ambassador program, but like I you wouldn't even have to pay me. I literally like I literally plug Rihanna to all my clients, guys. So, um, yeah, if you no, I know. But like it's it's just like it's foolproof. Like you just go um, go to her website. All the bundles are right there. Um, and who better to do it than somebody that's from our industry and knows our struggles and what we're going through. So I am just so grateful to have gotten to know you and thank you for coming on the show. And guys, if you want to find Rihanna, you can find her again at She Trademarks. And um, thanks for coming along with us. I was excited to hear about your journey and I'll see you soon. Thank you. It was so much fun having having me. Thank you. It was so much fun you having me on the show. Um, people can follow me on She Trademarks on Instagram. And if you are interested in any of the bundles or resources we talked about on the show, you can find those at SheTrademarks.com. Nice. And we'll make sure we link those in the show notes too. All right. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.